And the Islamic world is a bit of a newcomer, but it stands in more or less the same position that Persia stood before it in the Silk Road, trading with China and India. And we can look at world history. Here's another connection right to the present day. What we have happening today is that those major powers of antiquity are maybe coming back. They were defeated in the 18th, 19th, those centuries of industrial capitalist imperialism. And they're now coming back in various ways. Uh, and that's going together with some changes in relations of production, perhaps. But back here, in the days of the Silk Road, these are the big three to begin with, right? And the Arab world is, is filling one of those slots at this moment. And the informants here of Abu Zaid are speaking with great admiration, although China as well has just suffered a great blow. The, the Tang Dynasty uh, has fallen. Uh, nevertheless, though, they speak with great admiration of all kinds of social programs. You have pension, a pension system. You have a passport system. You have all kinds of customs systems to keep track of which traders are in the country and what are they carrying. The great variety of trade goods. This is that value in motion, that merchant capital. Indian rhino horn, Tibetan musk, Gulf pearls, Chinese porcelain, Sri Lankan sapphires, Maldivian quar, Arabian and East African ambergris. That's a material that's used in perfumes today. Ambergris is a kind of like booger that builds up in the, some kind of stomach of a whale isn't it? And it, it smells very strong, and it is. it was treated as a drug, actually. It was part of the growth of the drug trade in the age of European exploration. Such a big part of that was the establishment of the global drug trade. If we can creatively call feudalism the grain state, maybe we can call modern capitalism actually the drug state. Those of us who know a bit about parapolitics in the modern world, know just how important the, drugs, the drug trade actually is to global finance. But those commodification of those sub substances as drugs and the way that they were moving in markets is probably not quite the same as at this time of merchant capital. But you have just all these different commodities. Uh, East African ambergris, Abyssinian leopard skins. Abyssinia is Eastern Africa, isn't it? And people are just going all over the place. There's actually the same person does seem to be going quite far now. You have the seed of the maritime empire actually planted here in the Indian Ocean. And the Iberians are really only going to take that over. And then the Dutch and the British will take it away from the Iberians. And then America takes it away from the British and here we are today. But you can see some of this right away, right? China and the customs of its inhabitants. So we see they possess gold, silver, pearls, brocades, and silks, and all in large quantities. But all those are regarded as items of commerce, while the copper coins alone are used as currency. Ivory, frankincense, and copper ingots are imported into China, as well as double from the sea, which are the shells from turtles' backs and the Bushan, which we have described already, namely the rhinoceros whose horns they make into belts. That appears in the tale of Genji, too, doesn't it? In Japan, uh, not long after this, 
isn't it? The tale of Genji is completed by 1009 or something. And Genji wears a rhinoceros horn belt, which that's a Chinese fashion item. Very, very expensive, I think. And here is porcelain. They have a fine type of clay that is made into cups as delicate as glass. When held up to the light, any liquid in them can be seen through the body of the cup, even though it is of clay. Imagine. As soon as the sea merchants put into harbor, the Chinese take charge of their goods and transport them to warehouses, guaranteeing indemnity for up to six months, that is, until the last of the sea merchants arrives. Then three-tenths of the goods are taken in kind as duty, and the remainder is returned to the merchants. Any goods that the ruler needs, he also takes, but he gives the very highest price for them and pays immediately, so he does no harm to the merchants. Among the goods he buys is camphor, paying 50 fakuge for a, a mond. So we have all this you know, data. This is important data for these traders to, to have. You have to know what's going to happen if I bring this much there. This would help them to plan their trading voyages along this network. And they talk about all kinds of other sort of, we have a kind of anthropology growing here. When one of the Chinese dies, he is not buried until the anniversary of his death. Is this, maybe this is true in some parts of China? I can tell you that in Japan, certainly, the body is immediately cremated, but then there's a memorial tablet that stays in the house for a long time in a similar way, actually many years, and then when a certain number of death anniversaries have gone by, that tablet will go and be installed in a temple and a more permanent grave where the bones are already. But yeah, back in China, in the intervening period, they place the body in a coffin and leave it in their house. They put quicklime on the corpse, which absorbs the fluids from it so that it remains uncorrupted. Their rulers are embalmed in aloes and camphor. They weep for their dead for three years. All who do not weep, whether women or men, are beaten with wooden staves, and they say to them, do you not grieve for your dead? Eventually, the dead are buried in graves like the graves of the Arabs. Up until the time of burial, however, they keep on giving food to the dead person, for they maintain that he eats and drinks. They leave the food by the corpse at night, and when next morning they find none of it left, they say he has eaten it. They do not cease weeping over the corpse and giving it food as long as it remains in their house. Indeed, they will impoverish themselves for the sake of their dead and will spend every last penny and sell every last plot of land and spend the proceeds to this end. And the part about spending a lot of money on funerals is certainly recognizable from modern China, I think. But you can see that Abu Zaid would have his own kind of take on that. And all from the point of view of a Muslim who is going to be kind of denigrating some of these practices of uh, sacrifice, sacrificial goods and so on. Even Fudlan says similar things about the Viking Rus. They disembark as soon as their boats dock. Each carries bread, meat, onions, milk, and alcohol to a large block of wood set in the ground. The piece of wood has a face on it, like the face of a man. It is surrounded by small figurines placed in front of large blocks of wood set in the ground. He prostrates himself before the large figure and says, Lord, I have come from a distant land with such and such a number of female slaves and such and such a number of sable pelts. So furs, this is another big trade good on the Silk Road at this time. And many of these hunter-gatherer groups, nomadic traders uh, that are peripheral to the Muslim world, uh, including the Viking Rus, um, the Khazars, who actually, after hosting debates between the three Abrahamic religions, decide that they want to become Jews. 
and they enter the Silk Road trading networks as Jews. They would trade in pelts. That's very important. Uh, liquid, another liquid currency there would be brocade fabrics and silk. That silk network would go all the way to Japan. That's a connection there. But so he lists all his merchandise. Then he says, and I brought this offering. He leaves his offering in front of the piece of wood, saying, I want you to bless me with a rich merchant with many dinars and dirhams. Notice this is Islamic currency, who will buy from me whatever I wish and not haggle over any price I set. Then he leaves, right? And so they, they're praying to their gods there. Um, he goes up to each figurine in turn and petitions it. And to a Muslim, this will seem very silly. Right, that's the point of view here. Um, if he makes a sale, my, he will say, my Lord has satisfied my request, and so I need to compensate him. He acquires some sheep or cows and kills them, give a portion of the meat as alms, and place the rest before the large block of wood. So we have this scientific scientific demystification of, of this from a Muslim point of view. When night falls, the dogs come and eat it all up, and the man who has gone to all this trouble says, my Lord is pleased with me and has taken my offering. Now, Ibn Fadlan also gives us a bit of a Rusia counter-argument to that at the end of the funeral scene later. One of the Rusia says, uh, You Arabs, you are a lot of fools. Why is that? Because you purposefully take your nearest and dearest and those whom you hold in the highest esteem and put them in the ground, where they are eaten by vermin and worms. We, on the other hand, cremate them there and then so that they may enter the garden on the spot. This has been a preview of a premium episode of the Kingless Generation podcast. Please go to patreon.com slash irregnata, I-R-R-E-G-N-A-T-A, to hear the full thing and join the community. Join the Kingless Generation. I hope to see you on Discord.